All right, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 8. If you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, you'll find Luke chapter 8 on page 731. We did have someone who was supposed to be running the media shout this morning, but um, they and I both failed to realize that they actually weren't here this morning, so these things happen. So Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Jesus took a lot of flack from the religious people in his day. He took flack for seemingly breaking some of their most treasured uh, religious rules, He took flack for offering God's blessings to the enemy. And Jesus took flack for associating with shameful and unworthy kinds of people like tax collectors and prostitutes. After all, as a Torah-keeping rabbi, it was sketchy for Jesus to associate with prostitutes, for example. Um, And yet, um, Jesus did something even more sketchy than associate with prostitutes. And that is that in today's passage we learn Jesus associated with respectable women and married women. And this probably doesn't strike us as that radical because we live in the 21st century West uh, and not in the first century Middle East. You see, to understand the, the culture that Jesus lived in when it came to the treatment of women, you have to think of it as a lot less like our culture and a lot more like the Taliban. In Jesus' culture, girls got married in their teens soon after they reached puberty, often to husbands significantly older than them who would finish the job of raising them. Women in Jesus' culture had few rights, and they were dependent on their fathers and their husbands who had significant control over them. A woman's role was, uh, was within her extended family. It was to be close to home. It was to run the affairs of her household. Women received little education in most cases, and in many cases were not even taught the Jewish scriptures beyond what they learned as children and in the synagogue services. No serious rabbi of that time would take on a woman as a disciple. After all, what was the point? Not only was she a woman, but she couldn't become a rabbi or discuss God's ways with the men at the city gate. I don't know if he spoke for all rabbis, but one well-known rabbi spoke for at least some when he said, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. That was the culture Jesus lived in. Further, women back then were often barred from full participation in the temple worship. Their monthly cycle made them routinely unclean and required extra work on their part to obey the rituals of cleansing. And while they were unclean, they uh, could make others unclean just by touching them or by touching something that the others touched. And, and so women lived a regular portion of their lives at that time being untouchable and cut off from the visible presence of God. Men also had a habit back then, like today, of not being able to control themselves around women. And, and then blaming the women for being too seductive. And it's kind of funny if it, to us given the fact that back then uh, in public women had to keep their hair up and covered and their arms and legs covered with loose-fitting garments. 
And yet society did what, what it could to keep women out of public when and where men were likely to be present. And wherever their travels might have taken women during the day, by evening they were expected to be at home, and if not in their own home, then in the home of a male relative. That was the culture in which Jesus lived. And yet what does Luke tell us in today's text? He tells us that along with the 12 apostles, there were a number of women with Jesus as he traveled from town to village to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. Luke names three of this, these women, though he tells us there were many others. He names Mary from a town called Magdala. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Susanna, who we don't know anything else about. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Then Luke adds that these women were helping to support Jesus and his followers out of their own means. In other words, these women, some of them at least, were wealthy women. Certainly Joanna was. She was nobility. Her husband was in charge of King Herod's court. And it's utterly surprising that these women in that culture were traveling around with Jesus as his disciples. Why weren't they at home with their families, with, with their husbands, with their male relatives? What did Joanna's husband, Chusa, think that his wife had left home to traipse around with a bunch of strange men? What did Chusa's boss, Herod, think? You know this was the talk of the court. And where did these women sleep at night with all these men around? Now, again, this is no big deal today. We're used to almost anything goes when it comes to men and women together. But you have to understand, we're talking about the first century Middle East here. This situation raises all kinds of questions about improprieties. I mean, for a man to be a prostitute was shameful and immoral to be sure, but at least society had a category for it. Society, for better or for worse, had prostitutes and men kept them in business. But for a rabbi to be associating, traveling around with other people's wives, with respectable women, may it never be. What kind of man was this? What kind of new commune was he leading? And what's worse, Jesus had taken on these women as disciples. Again, this was sure to raise a lot of eyebrows. Women were not to be taught the scripture like this. It was viewed in Jesus' day as a waste at best, or more likely as irresponsible and shameful. You can just hear the ladies in Galilee talking this over, you know. Have you heard about that rabbi, Jesus? He has women with him for shame. No wonder the sinful men flock to them. He's teaching the women Torah. Is he that desperate for disciples? Don't these women know their place? So why is Luke telling us all this? Why is he giving information which does so much to call into question the reputation and respectability of Jesus in that culture. Well, Luke has an agenda, a Holy Spirit-inspired agenda, we believe. And it's to let us know just how Jesus feels about women and how much Jesus is willing to risk his reputation and even the acceptance of his ministry in order to treat women the way God wants them to be treated. And today's text isn't an isolated passage in Luke. It actually highlights one of Luke's major themes. 
a theme which begins back in Luke 1 when a young teen named Mary outshines an older righteous priest. (laughs) Didn't want to sneeze into the microphone. Mary outshines this priest by, by demonstrating more trust in God and more willingness to be used by God in God's surprising ways. And then this young woman, Mary, prophesies and praises God and her words are preserved for us as scripture. Then in last Sunday's passage, we met a woman who, who loved Jesus better than, than a righteous Pharisee did. And this was right after Jesus had told us the incredible words in, in chapter seven twenty eight that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Remember that two weeks ago? And, and then immediately after that, we meet this woman. The implication being this sinful woman who loved Jesus so well is greater than John the Baptist. And moving forward in Luke's gospel to chapter 10, we'll see a woman named Mary sit at Jesus' feet with the men as his disciple. And when her sister Martha protests and and calls her back into the kitchen to do the women's work, Jesus defends Mary and applauds her desire to learn as a disciple. Then at the cross, as Jillian read for us, Luke reintroduces us to these same women that we meet today. In 2349, Luke mentions that when Jesus was crucified, while all his his male disciples had scattered, these women who had followed Jesus from Galilee stood at a distance watching. Six verses later, these women are with Jesus as he's buried at the tomb. And then in chapter 4, they are the first at the tomb to witness the resurrection. And, And Luke mentions Mary Magdalene and Joanna there by name. And it's these women who first proclaim the Easter gospel that Jesus is risen. Luke is being very intentional here to include these women at the most key points in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the prime witnesses and first proclaimers of these events which lie at the heart of the gospel. And in our passage this morning, Luke makes sure that we know that these stories aren't just isolated instances, but but rather that these women had been disciples of Jesus all along. So the paintings are wrong. The paintings which picture Jesus always surrounded by 12 men. Luke would have us paint a number of women back into those paintings. In a culture which largely recognized and respected men, Jesus was creating a new community where women had a welcomed and vital role. In Jesus' community, in Jesus' kingdom, women are welcome to be disciples alongside of men to learn the scriptures and the ways of God, the ways of Jesus. Women's praises and prophecies are are welcomed as the word of the Lord to us all. Women are counted among those who are greater than John the Baptist. Women are accepted as witnesses of the most important events in the history of salvation, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. And women, in fact, are the first proclaimers in the Jesus community of the resurrection gospel. And all of this is surprising and revolutionary in the culture of Jesus' day. And so what we need to get here is not just that Jesus wants women to have a vital place in God's kingdom, but that he wants it so badly that he was willing to risk the consequences of breaking a whole bunch of society's rules and expectations in order to accomplish it. This was a non-negotiable for Jesus. Well, Jesus does give us an explanation of how he justifies such a radical innovation in gender roles. And it's found in Luke 
8, 19 to 21, if you want to flip over a page and, and look at that. This is a passage which comes, Luke 8, 19 to 21, comes right on the, the far end of two parables that Jesus is about to tell in our story. And in fact, some interpreters believe that Luke is intentionally relating that passage in Luke 8, 19 to 21, to the one we're looking at mainly this morning in verses 1 to 3. Luke's doing it by sandwiching the two parables um, with these texts, which are both about male and female disciples, right, on either side of, of the parables. In 8, 19 to 21, Jesus' mother and brothers come to Jesus wanting to talk to him. And what does Jesus say in response? Who are my mother and brothers? Uh, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's words and put it into practice. And when we get to that passage, we'll see how utterly radical that was because saying that Jesus' followers, his disciples, were his true mother and brothers wasn't just some cute metaphor that Jesus was telling. No, Jesus was in effect publicly denying his physical mother and brothers as his true family and saying, I have a new family now. My new family is every man and woman, everyone who, every disciple who listens to God's word and puts it into practice. Which, by the way, is what the two parables in the middle of the sandwich are about. They're about what we do with Jesus' words when we hear them. And so what Jesus is saying is this. I have left my family based on blood ties and started a new family based on word ties. Everyone who believes my word and puts it into practice is part of my new family. And do you know what that means? It means that Mary Magdalene and Susanna and Joanna and the other women with Jesus are not out of place to be hanging out with Jesus. Their presence wasn't about hanky-panky or, or just about uh, reordering society's expectations of the roles that women should play. No, their presence was about Jesus reordering society itself. Because Jesus was forming a new society around himself, a new kingdom, a new family. And because these women were now part of his family, because they were his mothers, as he says they were, and perhaps by extension his sisters too, these women are now under the wholesome protection of a male relative after all. And Jesus insists that in his family, women can learn about God, can participate in God's kingdom as men can. And so while their presence seemed radical in Jesus' culture, it was only radical to those who didn't get the more radical step that Jesus had taken. Jesus had created a new family and adopted all who listened and obeyed his words into his new family, be they male or female, Pharisee or tax collector, rich or poor, this new family would be characterized by equality. The good news of this passage is that to follow Jesus, to listen to his word and to put it into practice, is to have a welcome place in a new family and a new kingdom, whether society or religion say you belong or not. It reminds me of a story that um, was featured on ABC News several years back. It was titled, Adopted Minnesota Man Learns He is a Prince. Marty Johnson knew he was the product of two college students who had had a brief relationship. Neither parent was prepared 
at the time to deal with raising a child. And so Johnson was given up for adoption and grew up in a loving home in Minnesota. Years later, as an adult, he started digging through past records and, and got in contact with his birth mother. Then one day a letter arrived for him that said, Welcome to the Agika dynasty. You come from a noble and prestigious family. The letter went on to explain that Johnson was the next in line to inherit the position of village chief from his biological father, John Ogika, the current chief of Abo Village in Nigeria. Johnson flew to Nigeria to meet his new family. He went from having no knowledge about his blood relatives to a noisy celebration in the village. And there he was united with brothers and sisters, with numerous aunts, uncles, and cousins, and of course with his father. And that's what Jesus is offering to a whole bunch of people whose society said didn't belong, didn't deserve a full place at the table in God's family. And in today's passage, we see what radically good news this was for women. Okay, so what's the relevance of all of this today? We don't live in the ancient Middle East, obviously. We, we live in 21st century America, and, and gender issues have, have changed a lot since Jesus' day. Well, let me suggest for those who follow Jesus and are citizens of his kingdom, members of his family, that this passage gives us three new ways to view things. First of all, it helps us to see that in Jesus' family, spirit is thicker than blood. That the men and women, the boys and girls around you who follow Jesus really are your family. That's why Paul told Timothy uh, later in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. And why don't you turn over there if you know where to find that. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy there, Do not rebuke an older man harshly but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger women or younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Those who follow Jesus are to treat one another as family. And what do families do? They spend time together. They they put up with each other. They've got to, right? Because they're family. I was just spent the weekend first with a bunch of Ann's family and then with a bunch of my family. And we get along pretty well, but, you know, we have our issues. But we've got to stick together because we're family. You, you put up with your relatives. Um, what else do families do? They, they, they take care of one another financially and practically. And, and here's one for singles. They treat each other with purity. When I was in college, uh, a speaker that, that we had once pointed out that this may have some ramifications for dating. Paul tells Timothy, treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And this speaker said, guys, before you start getting physical with your girlfriend, ask yourself, would I be doing this with my sister? And girls, you could ask, would my brother be doing this with me? And that's something to think about. <laughs> All right, so... Um, this passage shows us that um, spirit is thicker than blood when it comes to family. Second, we see in today's passage how money is viewed in Jesus' kingdom. Remember, these women who follow Jesus use their funds to support Jesus and the work that he's doing. And throughout Luke, if you keep reading, Luke or Jesus has a lot to say about our money and the ways he expects us to handle it. 
And already here, Luke is giving us these women as an example. What are Christian women to be known for? Not their ability to shop, but their ability to lead the way in generously investing in God's kingdom. Did you ever wonder how Jesus survived? Traveling from village to village with his disciples, certainly he relied on the hospitality of various people. They'd all left their homes and their jobs to follow Jesus. But, but was Jesus constantly, you know, making bread and, and wine miraculously to feed them all? Uh, we don't have any evidence that he was doing that or that he was spinning clothing out of nothing, uh, you know, providing for their other expenses regularly. We, you know, have a few miraculous examples, but, but we, we have no evidence that Jesus provided this way on a regular basis for his disciples. But rather, Luke tells us here how this group were provided for when they were not enjoying the hospitality in someone's home. There were some wealthy women who were followers of Jesus, and they were investing their funds in supporting Jesus' ministry. Do you think that was a pretty good investment? I'd say so. And, And why not? After all, they were family now. And as a family, they were engaged in God's mission together. And one way these rich ladies were able to contribute was was to help to fund this mission. That's what followers of Jesus do with their money. They look for opportunities to support Jesus' work and Jesus' family. Third thing we see in this passage. We see how Jesus intentionally challenges the oppression of women. And, And since Jesus' day, we've come a long way, baby, right? Women have gained freedoms, they've gained rights, they've gained opportunities, they've gained greater respect. And followers of Jesus, if you read church history, have, uh, as they've followed the example of their master, have been largely responsible for these gains. Women's suffrage, you may know, was, was in large part a Christian movement, which, which came out of the revivals of the 1800s. Many of the early champions of women's rights, it's like uh, Susan B. Anthony and Charles Finney were Christians. And, and Christian missionaries have worked tirelessly around the world to overturn practices and institutions which are oppressive to women. Widow burning in India is just one example. And many of these impulses go back to Jesus and, and to the New Testament. And, and so here's where it gets tricky today because... We've done so well in America and other Western democracies at gaining rights for women that society has passed by the church. And uh, now the church finds itself with the shoe on the other foot. There are many in the church who are now saying that society has gone too far and that we should hold on to certain traditional roles for women. After all, the Bible has several texts which restricted the roles that women could play alongside of these texts that we're looking at this morning. And so now, sometimes society looks at Jesus' followers and see us as oppressive toward women. And this is a tough one. And I know there aren't easy answers, but it's one we've got to wrestle through as God's people. Somehow, we need to be both true to Scripture as we understand it, and at the same time, true to Jesus, who risked and sacrificed a lot in order to bring good news to women and to offer them great worth and responsibility and dignity in his kingdom. Mary Magdalene, Susanna, Joanna, disciples of Jesus in a culture where you couldn't be a disciple are proof of this fact of how Jesus viewed women. Amen.